So today we're going to take some time and listen to harrowing stories of the persecution of Jews, the Jewish people. My guest grew up in the shadows of the Holocaust, born to survivors of Holocaust in Sweden. This is one of those stories that um, that is sensitive. This is one of those stories that many find uncomfortable to talk about. Look, we're going to take some time to go through this without a debate. We're going to have a conversation. He's a second generation survivor of the Holocaust. What does he even mean by that? Born to survivors of the same harrowing persecution of the Jews. What, what inspires um, these addictive ideologies, these kinds of hatred? What's behind it really? These are questions we should be asking, but most of all, I want us to know that behind the persecution is human beings. And behind the, the persecutors are human beings. The perpetrators are human beings. We need to look beyond just what has transpired. The hatred for the Jews. Look, if you live in Africa, you may have heard and you know about the kinds of genocides. We also have our own very fair share of genocide, of, ha of hatred, of, um, of, um, of persecution. Our guest is going to take us through all that today. He has written a book called Painful Joy, a Holocaust family memoir. And he's going to take us through that. Took him about five years to research and really find out what happened to his parents. If you know anyone who's going to find value in this story, if you know anyone who's going to find value in this discussion, this conversation, I want you to tell them to jump in. But most of all, share this podcast far and near. Share it far and near. Persecution. Hatred, addictive ideologies, and this is what we have talked about in the, in, in the past few weeks. We are back on this path again. My guest joins me momentarily. MDN TV, the podcast. Be abreast with now. Never miss a thing with MDN TV, the podcast. We love to keep you in the present with diverse goodies from secular and non-secular subjects of global interest. Join us. Grab more from these series. Listen to our podcasts. The Undeniable Choice. The Undeniable Choice indeed for today is Max Friedman. Thanks a gazillion times, Max, for saying yes, for sharing yourself and your wisdom and your story with the whole world. We are honored today to really have you on this show. I want you to take a moment to really tell 
our global viewers and listeners, why do you call yourself a second generation Holocaust survivor? Max, the mic swings to you. Uh, delighted to try to share a story that took me most of my life to even think about putting down on paper and sharing with others. When I was a young man, uh, a young boy, I we lived in Coney Island, uh, which is the southern part of Brooklyn. It was filled with a large amusement park, and we lived near the beach. But we were never allowed to go on rides. And as a young boy, I knew that our life in many other ways was not normal. My parents fought a lot. They had nightmares, and we would have to wake them up in the middle of the night and try to calm them down. My father would run out of the house. My mother would scream. She would carry a knife and say that she was going to kill herself. They suffered from serious post-traumatic stress syndrome, PTSD. And my sister and I knew a bit about their past. We knew that they were survivors of the Holocaust. The uh, extraordinary effort by the Nazis to wipe out the Jewish population uh, anywhere they could, starting in Europe, and especially in Poland, where there were more Jews in that country than anywhere else in the world at the time, the 1930s and 1940s, uh, except the United States. So we knew that they had survived that and that most other people hadn't. And in fact, if you look at statistics, you could see that only 3 to 4% of a Jewish population in Poland of about well over 3.5 million people only three and three or four percent actually survived, and two of those people were my parents. They didn't know each other during the war. They had families uh, other than yes, and they passed some of their stresses and some of their fears to my sister and to me, and we probably passed them on to other generations. So I decided. Uh, that as a second-generation Holocaust survivor, what I really meant by that was that I survived their survival. And so yes, what they had faced to understand it better, to relate it better, so that we could see them more as whole human beings and not only as survivors. Mm -hmm. And the book is called Painful Joy. The title comes from uh, a poem that was written in the Middle Ages about the nature of love when it's touched by death. How does love change when it's touched by death? And that was the story of my parents who met after the war uh, in Sweden, where my sister and I were born, after their liberation from concentration camps. And they loved each other at that point, which was probably the biggest surprise that I had as I wrote this book because we never saw that kind of love because that love had been touched so much by death. Everyone they ever knew, 
every member of their family, save one person, actually, out of hundreds, uh, were murdered. And they came out the other side, and as, as you heard, we and they lived in the shadow of that Holocaust for the rest of their lives. Where is home for you? Right now we live uh, in the New York City area, a little bit north of New York in, in uh, Westchester County in the United States. Uh, we grew up uh, in Brooklyn, in the New York area. Uh, but again, as I said, we were born in Sweden because that's where they ended up and where they met. Yes. And how did you end up there? Survived uh, three camps, Flachau, Auschwitz, and Bergen-Belsen. My father had survived three slave labor camps and then two concentration camps. So they had mm. uh, been in those camps uh, suffering uh, for almost the entire war. During that time, their families, some were in the camps that they were in, some in others, and all of them were murdered. And my parents, after they were liberated by the British uh, in 1945 from Bergen-Belsen, uh, which was a, a camp in Pol in uh, Germany, they were each taken because they were sick and uh, uh, and weak and malnourished to Sweden to recuperate for a few months. And they were in other camps, nicer camps, but they were separated in refugee camps uh, for the survivors. And, and they met at one of those camps and they married soon after they met. And uh, we were born there. And they wanted to come to the United States, but it took them about seven years to actually arrange for somebody to sponsor them and to bring them to the United States with us. Mm. Wow. Your story is about um, what hate can do. Tell us how you found out. It was quite a journey because most of uh, my life, I'm 72 now, uh, I was not interested in learning much more. We had suffered, though they had suffered so much more, by just reliving some of their past with them. But we tried very much not to ask them very much about their past. My father never spoke about his past. He never spoke about his first wife yeah. and two little girls uh, who had been murdered in Auschwitz. But he didn't tell us any of that, yeah. uh, except for a short conversation I had with him when I was 20 years old. And I asked him to tell me something, because uh, I knew that there was something very wrong in our lives and in their lives. But I didn't know exactly how many people had been lost, what had happened to them, what had happened to him. 
And mm-hmm. so he told me a little bit about his wife and his and his two little girls. And the surprising thing was he told me, but he didn't tell me their names. He didn't tell me exactly where they were even killed. Uh, he just told me that they had hidden out and they were discovered and they were taken away and he was taken away separately. Um, it turned out that that story was true and not true. And what I discovered as I decided to learn more about their past and who they were even before the Holocaust was that one of the ways that they it helped them survive is that they made up, reimagined their, their past. My father's story about him hiding out with his children and his wife actually never could have happened because he was in a concentration camp already at the time uh, that they were taken. But I believe that he felt so much guilt for surviving, so much shame for not being with them and dying with them, in fact, that he made up another story and he came to believe that story. My mother did similar things. She had a a fantasy life. Uh, Her real life in Poland was fairly miserable. So instead, when she told us about her life, only briefly, she told us that, in fact, she had a dance studio and that he operated a dance studio so much that was so successful that uh, they had a maid, they had a large five-room apartment and a great deal of money. And that the Nazis came one day, broke into their apartment, took the money and then put them in camps. Her Mm. first husband uh, was killed, murdered in Buchenwald, uh, and she survived several camps as well. But that was the story she told us. And I, we believed her story. And again, it was a story that she told herself. And that's what I came to understand as I did the research over the last five or six years, to learn more about the stories they told, the stories they didn't tell, what really happened to them and to the members of their family, and how that affected their lives and therefore my own life and the life of my sister in in terms of having to take care of them. There's a, an expression called child parents, and we became their child parents. We couldn't depend on them because they couldn't really operate well as a nor- in a normal life. And so we had to care for them when we were very young and that continued uh, throughout their lives and um, until they passed away. Yes. Your parents were survivors of the Holocaust, but um, not many really survived, especially in Poland. Can you tell us the things that you think helped them survive? Yeah, Uh, as I said, later in their lives or while they were even in the camps, they had decided on various stories about their lives. Yes. Ways to cope with, with the unimaginable. 
In addition, I think they were both extremely adaptable and extremely intuitive. So my mother, for example, uh, was in Auschwitz. She had uh, been in Plaschow. I don't know if, how many of your listeners have seen Schindler's List, but that story was very much my mother's story, except that she wasn't saved, like mm -hmm. some of the Jews were saved by, yes. by Oscar Schindler. But she was quick-witted enough to look around at her circumstances and decide things very quickly and be willing to take risks uh, based on her observations. She and her sister were both in the same camp uh, called Plaschow, outside of Krakow. And the Soviets were coming and so the camp was being emptied and trying the evidence of what happened in that camp were, was being destroyed in some cases by simply killing the people who were alive in other cases some of those people were sent to other camps and my mother and her sister the only two who survived from their large family mm. uh, were sent to auschwitz we know that in Auschwitz, over a million people were murdered. Yes. They could have been amongst them. When you arrive at Auschwitz, you get off at a train ramp, a large platform, where the trains pulled up, and a selection was made between those who would live, at least for a period of time, as slave laborers, and those who would be killed immediately told that they were going to be showered and then be fed. And instead, they stood on lines naked and went into the showers, and the showers were where they were gassed to death. My mother was young. She was about in her late 20s. Her sister was older. And her sister was selected to go in one direction and my mother in another and the direction that my sister that her sister was was selected to go in there were just old people and young children and mm -hmm. some mothers and my mother decided that she looked around her her group and they seemed to be pretty healthy and stronger at least so she ran over across to the other group and grabbed her sister and brought her over to her group. Obviously, there were guards, there were large German shepherd dogs yeah. that were set on them, and they were beaten as they went across to the other side. Uh, and yet, they managed, it, it was not a particularly orderly area, there were hundreds of people and and there was enough chaos and commotion that some people could do that. And so my mother saved her sister's life. And my father had the ability to adapt. Uh, he had a very nice sense of humor. He was a very sweet man. And I think he, again, looked at the world and said, this is the way it is. I can't do anything about it. I'm a prisoner. And he didn't look into the future at all. He looked in, into only the moment. So when he was freezing 
and he decided that if he couldn't get more clothes, he would freeze to death. Soon, he, uh, he found a cement bag, uh, and he put it under his clothes. He was beaten when that was discovered, beaten around the head many times over many years, three years actually. But he, he felt that if he could just live another day, that's what mattered. He, and he was willing to take those risks. Uh, so I think both of those kind, their personalities helped them. My father also was a religious man. Yes. Not as religious as uh, uh, as we thought, but a religious man nevertheless, and had some faith, yes. and was, I think, willing uh, to put his faith in his God, and and but act as well. That faith alone would not save him. That praying alone would not save him. That he had to do anything he could to get to the next moment in time. And I think those characteristics help them uh, not overcome the nightmares, but at least create another family, my sister and, and me, from the, fam from the family that they lost. Mm. Did they ever, did they ever lose their um, fear of death? while they were in the camps. I think they didn't think, I, I think the people who thought about death were often the people who ended up dying because they, they focused perhaps a bit on that as opposed to focusing on life, actually. You know, that the, the good news for them was that they didn't know for sure that the families, the people they loved, had actually been killed, uh, except I think probably for my mother's mother, who 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 was shot uh, as they liquidated the Krakow ghetto. But the others disappeared. So because they disappeared, there was always a hope that they might have lived, and only later at the toward the end of the war and then afterwards when no one could find them anymore uh, it, or in some cases there were records already that 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 their various family members had actually been killed in one camp or another uh, but but they didn't look at death they looked at life and I think that that made a difference and and even in the suffering that that we watched all those years when we when we were lived with them and when they were alive with us in the second family, uh, we we could see that they were suffering, but there was always another day, and and I think while my mother had a darker attitude and my sis my father uh, a more a lighter attitude and uh, they both relished the time that they had did they ever tell you how they got into their camps how were they taken there and how uh, did they stay there for yeah the, again 
my my mother's story was was fairly clear in that uh, she was first in the Krakow ghetto, and uh, the ghetto was liquidated, and the ones who survived the liquidation, uh, there were about fifteen thousand people in the Krakow ghetto, about three thousand were were killed very quickly uh, when the uh, ghetto was was liquidated and then another 2,000 uh, were sent to uh, Auschwitz to be killed so about 5,000 and the others were sent to Plaschow and again I don't know uh, if your listeners have ever seen Schindler's List but there was a, a commander of that camp called uh, Amon Get who would my mother would tell us, uh, unfortunately, our bedtime stories were stories about concentration camps. We never heard about uh, Goodnight Moon or Dr. Seuss. Uh, but my mother would tell us about how this man would stand on in on his the porch of his villa and randomly shoot people before breakfast. Just anybody who was uh, was got into his my mother would tell us those stories so so we got to know things about the camps and we got to know how they would go from one camp to the next camp to the next my father ended up for three years in one camp called Bunslow in Germany and at the end toward the end of the war uh, they took him on a death march so that camp was being liquidated and again the evidence of what the Nazis had done uh, was being vanished and being hidden. And the only way to do that is by killing or, or somehow vanishing the prisoners. So my, my parents were in a number of different camps, slave labor camps and concentration camps. My father didn't talk about any of that. My mother, unfortunately, did. In fact, uh, my sister and I, when we were very young, from our earliest memories, heard stories about concentration camps. So instead of being read bedtime stories about Dr. Seuss or Goodnight, Mm -hmm. uh, bunny or Goodnight Moon. Or, uh, instead, we learned about Amon Get. Uh, and my mother would always talk about Get. Uh, Get was the commander of the Plaschow concentration camp. He, and that was the first concentration camp that my mother was imprisoned in. Yes. And Get uh, spent most of his time killing. And he would get up in the morning for breakfast and kill a bunch of prisoners at random. Mm. He would kill them uh, for being too tall, for being too short, for sitting down instead of standing up. And he would just shoot them from the porch of his villa. And my mother would tell us those stories. She would tell us about being intentionally poisoned when she was Bergen-Belsen. As, as the uh, Germans were trying to erase the evidence of their horrific crimes as the Allies were uh, 
nearing those camps. We heard stories. My father would would tell stories about how he had to try to save himself, uh, and when he would try to put on another piece of clothing, uh, he would be beaten. And and besides the stories that they told later, I would research more stories and testimony from some survivors who were with them in in those camps. So we learned uh, a lot more than we ever wanted to know when we were we were very very young and the stories from my mother really never ended but they were only about concentration yes who she married and where where she lived i didn't know what happened to them and that was the reason why i thought it was important to find out to find out who they were, what kind of human beings they were. And maybe from that, I could even find out how and why they survived when so many others didn't. Yes. I'm just thinking about um, bedtime stories. Yeah, it it was hard to go to sleep. Yes. And... um, Couldn't sleep. My, my, My parents had... Terrible dreams, terrible nightmares. Hmm. And how all the time that I knew that that I knew them. And when we lived together, we lived in a very small apartment, and so their bed was opposite my bed uh, in the living room. Uh, and so no one slept well. And how did you and your sister survive? That's a a good question. We survived because the same way they survived, we had to, but we became survivors, I think. I I once, uh, I was working uh, at a job and I had a very bad boss and and I endured working there because I needed a job and I need to, needed to feed my own family. Uh, but I once was told by a psychiatrist that by not leaving, uh, I was trying to mimic my parents. I saw them as survivors. They did anything they could to survive and at, at any cost. And uh, I was mimicking that by, instead of leaving this bad boss, I, d- I took the safe route, not the correct route, by surviving him, by uh, somehow working harder than everybody else, by being funny and, and other ways of dealing with, with having a, uh, a difficult time at work. And he just said that after he heard that my parents were survivors, that in fact that's what I was doing. I was just trying to survive. and. And he said, one day you'll wake up and you'll say, maybe sometimes surviving isn't enough. And we also learned that some of the people, um, some of the Jewish people that actually survived in Poland pretended to be Christians. Yeah, yeah. The, 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 the stories of uh, either uh, as, as young, a lot of the younger, or not a lot, but younger children were put into convents 
and, and other ways of saving their lives. And they were brought up uh, as Christians. Uh, some of them uh, just made believe that they were Christians, but but that, that was actually quite difficult. Uh, the anybody who was who was Jewish uh, and was hidden by anybody who was Polish, and if that was discovered, the Pole would be killed as well, and and the Polish family would be killed. Oh. So it, it was a it was a horrific time, hidden and and uh, for everybody. But it, it, it is true that some uh, pretended to be Catholic or and, and some actually converted in the hope. But, but if the Nazis found you, and even if you had converted that, you know, if you had once been Jewish, you were always Jewish. Uh, yes. So it, it, it didn't help too many people. It helped some. Hmm. <laughs> Why so much hatred? That, that so is a story that I'll never understand. But, you know, again, we're, we're living in, in difficult times now. And Africa has certainly seen its share of genocide. Yes. Uh, we, we see what has been going on in Asia, in, in Myanmar. Uh, so, and we see anti-Semitism uh, occurring more and more and, and uh acts of, of hatred uh, occurring more and more in the United States as well uh, yes. at an unprecedented level. The, the Jews in Poland were actually quite poor. They were a small group who got into universities and became doctors and, and lawyers, but for the most part, Jews were not allowed to own any land. They uh, were not allowed to work in certain industries. Uh, my parents families were extremely poor. My father went to work. His father died when he was four years old, and he was the oldest, and the, her mother uh, had 13 children. Many of them died over the years of illnesses or in childbirth, but there were eight who were left, and uh, my father was a, a tailor working out of their apartment. So they, they were poor, but but there was a general feeling that A, Jews were not poor, B, that somehow they had been involved, as, as we all know, in, in terrible things against Christians and drinking blood of children and all kinds of other crazy things that, that uh, were believed. And, and, and it, it, it just never ended. And, uh, and hatred too often is just around the corner. Yes. <laughs> Why did it take you so long to write this? Yeah, that's, a, that's a question I ask myself all the time. Uh, <laughs> yes. Ba basically, I think when I was younger, uh, again, we didn't know a lot. We didn't want to know a lot. Because, again, we, we couldn't ask our parents anything. Whatever they wanted to share, they shared. And it, for my mother, it was they, she shared too much of the wrong things. And so we didn't want to upset them more than they were. So we didn't ask them any questions. As I got older, uh, I, it, it was painful. It was, it was painful to even start thinking about what, could have, what happened to them. 
uh, when we had, you know, our second lives. And, and that, that was what we focused on. We didn't focus on the past. We focused on that. And that got us through the day. Then uh, once, in, in about 2016, actually, we have a granddaughter and a grandson. And our grandson, I had spoken to him about surviving and about DNA and about how you have to be strong. Bringing you the good news all day long. You, you, you were tuned in to the hottest station on the planet. On the planet. <laughs> Keep it locked. I had... To me, going, growing up with parents who had so many problems, who had clearly so many mental issues, as well as some physical issues as a result of what happened to them during the war, I guess I didn't want to know more. I couldn't ask them because to ask them would be bring up memories that they didn't want to have. And I had enough to do in my life. We were raising a family, and and my sister had a uh, had had a family, and we were just moving forward. The past was the past. Until one day, my grandson, this was in 2016 or so, and he was eight years old, asked me about the surviving. I had spoken to him briefly about the fact that my mother was a survivor and she was a tough lady but at the end of the day she loved us and we had a hard time with her because she survived some very bad things and I had also talked to him about DNA and about how you can inherit certain characteristics of other members of your family he somehow put the two put those two together and he asked me one day what does it mean to be a survivor? How did they survive? Uh, if they survived, did that make him a stronger person because then he inherited their ability to survive wow. and he'll be stronger for it? And I didn't know how to really answer any of those questions very well. And so I decided that it was time to find out. And that's what we did, my, my wife and I started a journey, a very difficult journey, of going back in time through archives, through travel, consulting experts, all kinds of different ways to start reconstruct the life of my parents from the time that they were born, because we didn't know when they were born or where they were born, till the time that they passed away, that we knew. And, and to create a story not only for my grandson, and we have a granddaughter, but for our children and for their children uh, to get a sense of who, where they came from. And that's what we did. And it took five or six years, and the result was this book. And uh, some pain, and but a lot of joy to at least know the names of these people who were murdered who were who were my family who had my dna that i ended up having too yes 
No, that DNA is passed on. <sighs> what are some of those things that your parents never wanted to talk about? Well, my, my father would never talked about his first family. I knew that he had been married because my mother told me that. I didn't know that. He had been married before and he had children. So my, my father rarely, rarely, if ever, spoke about the war, any, any aspect of it. My mother had told me that he, my father, had had a family before us. I didn't know any of that, and I didn't know who, what kind of family, how big it was. What were the names of these people? I found out. And when I found out, for example, that my father had a wife and two little girls, uh, and then I found out their names. And then I actually found out the day that they were likely murdered, gassed in the gas chambers at Auschwitz. And it, it, these were difficult things to hear and learn about, and it was only a few years ago that that, that happened. But it gave me a sense that these were real people. I finally met my relatives. I met my family. Mm. We shared at least the same DNA. Clearly, if my father's first family had survived, I would never have been. Yes. So that's a daunting idea. Mm. But at the same time, they and I, those two little girls, share the same genes, my father's genes. Yes. And on my mother's side, similar kinds of things. She never had other children, but she did have a husband. And her husband happened to be named, his, his last name was Friedman, as my father's last name was Friedman, and my last name is Friedman. So all kinds of things that they didn't share. And my mother didn't share anything about her first husband, except making up a story about a dance studio that never existed. And that's how she coped with her past and about a, a past that I think she wasn't proud of. I never knew, for example, that my mother at age four was a refugee and lived for five years on the streets of Prague with her family uh, during World War I and came back a very different person. She was only eight years old, but she went to school with kids who were much, much younger. And, and that changed how she related to people. It, it changed all kinds of things about her and mostly in a bad way. So these are things that they didn't tell us, things I had to find out. And when I found out, I, I, was, I was saddened, but I was happy that I knew more. And I wish only that I had had the courage to ask them more and that they had the ability, which they may not have had, to be willing to tell me more. Did you ever find out how your father's first family died? Yeah, so basically what had happened, the, the, the true story is that my father, from almost the first days of the war in September 1939 uh, was taken away to slave labor camps. And over time, those slave labor camps 
were turned into concentration camps. And so by the time 1943 came, uh, the little ghetto that his family were in, in a little town in Poland, uh, that, that ghetto was being liquidated and people in that ghetto were being sent mostly to be killed. My father already had been sent to a concentration camp in Germany and had been there for almost a year when that happened. It was August 1943. And as it turned out, there was a selection made and uh, my father's first wife and his two little girls were taken to Auschwitz. And uh, we actually found somebody who told my father, ultimately, that he saw them, he saw the girls being taken away from their mother. Mm. And because the mother was strong and young and could be a slave laborer for a while, the girls were taken away. One girl was just a year and a half, the other was four. And the mother said, according to the, the man that told my father this, that in fact that uh, the mother refused to leave the girls. She said, take me, I want to go with them. Mm. She didn't know what was going to happen to them, but she wanted to be with them. And in fact, that's when they took them to the gas chambers and killed them. When we visited Auschwitz uh, in 2018, uh, the, the the crazy thing about it is that there were so many ashes uh, that were created by the bodies that were burned in Auschwitz uh, that they didn't know what to do with the ashes. So what they ended up doing was putting the ashes under the on the ground. And so when you visit Auschwitz, you're walking on the ashes of the almost more than a million people who died there, who were killed there. And when we went, it, you know, it strikes, it struck me and my, and my wife that we were walking on my father's wife and children. And it's, it's, a, it's a very hard thing to take. And those are the kinds of things that we learned about and that they never told us about, but I'm glad that we learned. I'm, I'm not sure it made me a better person or a, a different person, but it made me understand even more what hate can do. Mm. Did you ever feel revengeful when you were there, as you were walking on those ashes? How? I mean, I can't. Imagine, I'm getting chills on my body. I can't. Yeah, it. It. We, we were. We, we were the. Uh, uh, somebody who had been helping us, uh, somebody who actually ran a Holocaust study center in Germany. And he had been helping with some of the research. And he came to Auschwitz from Munich just to walk with us. And he had been to Auschwitz dozens of times mm. with other people and doing his own research. And yet, when you go there and you see some of the artifacts, you see the piles of toys, that were left by the children. You see the, the luggage that was left by 
by the people who were passing through and ultimately kill, being killed there. Uh, he, he just started crying. I mean, you just look and, and you can't, oh. it, it, it's overwhelming for, for anybody, even if they knew this happened. And, and, and the only, the only way I could understand it, and, and I read this somewhere, that, that the way that people can take the lives of other people in this way is because they stop seeing them as human beings anymore. If you can stop seeing somebody as a human, and instead they're just not part of your part of humanity, they're something else. They're they're monsters. They're they're murderers. They're whatever they are, but they're not people anymore. Then you can do whatever to them. And uh, as Joseph Mengele, the the um, the monster of Auschwitz. Who uh, who did experiments on these children, on particularly on children, twins, uh, said when he was asked how how could you select somebody to go, you know, these just, no one did anything to you. How can you send so many people to the gas chambers? And he said when they arrived, I just saw them as ghosts. Yeah. They were not people. They were already dead. Yeah. And I think that's the only way you can do it. That that the way toward redemption of is to get people who may disagree they may think that you're you know once you diminish someone to the point where you don't even see them as a human and it's basically it's you versus them and only one of you can survive then 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 this is that the result is genocide mm. Would you go back to Poland again if you're given an opportunity? Well, I mean, Krakow is a beautiful city, gorgeous city, and it it had become the capital of of the of not of the of the Poland that Germany had invaded, yes. uh, because uh, the Germans had destroyed Warsaw because there was so much fighting against them in 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 Warsaw that so they just destroyed the whole city, the former capital of Poland. Uh, I, you know, you, it, it's it's past. I think there's still anti-Semitism in Poland. I think there's anti-Semitism everywhere in the United States. I mean, what, uh, it, it, so, I, I don't, I don't, I, I got past, and it was interesting when I was younger, uh, I went on with friends to Europe, bummed around Europe for a summer, and we went to Germany. And I was afraid to tell my parents that we had gone to Germany when we came back. Mm -hmm. I was in uh, college and I was just afraid. And then finally one day I just sort of told them, I blurted it out. They didn't care. They, I mean, they didn't, it, they didn't care. I mean, it, it wasn't that what happened happened and it was horrible. And they wished that it wouldn't have happened and that it won't ever happen again. But it wasn't, it was a past that they actually just mostly wanted to forget. And I think they couldn't. The sad truth is that they couldn't. And instead, they relived it in different ways inside themselves. And that's, that's PTSD, that's, that's trauma. That's, and that's what they passed on 
to some degree to my sister and to me. Tell us about some of your biggest surprises you uncovered in your research. Well, the 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 surprises, as I said, were the the stories that were we were told that turned out not to be true. The biggest one was that my mother had this dance studio. <laughs> when we went to Poland, I actually went to look for the dance studio. Wow. And we decided, my, my wife and I actually decided where it was based on the other stores and buildings that were around where they lived. Uh, so it, <laughs> to know that that was a total fabrication because my mother just couldn't tell us what her real life was like. Yes. Uh, so it made up this other fantastic story. Uh, wow. The the other the other surprises were just learning about where they lived, about uh, you know uh, that my father actually married uh, into a very wealthy family. He was only married for a few years until they were all killed. But but he could have had quite a different life. He he married the manager of a shop. And her family owned lots of other shops, and he was very poor. and And he could, you know, he was a smart guy. He could have had uh, a different life, and and he didn't. And that was a surprise, and and uh, a sad surprise. Mm-hmm. Uh, I found out that uh, several of my uh, of the relatives, my mother's, my grandfather, I guess, uh, almost made it to the end. Uh, and one of my mother's brothers died just three or four days before their camps were liberated. So mm-hmm. sad again, but uh, uh, you know that 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 time, uh, that fortune, just things just happen, and you don't know why, and and you can't control it. But you know the, that's why time is so very precious. Yes. It's so much to take in. Yeah, it is. Uh, it, it, it is. <laughs> I, you know, part of me doesn't like to share so much uh, because I know that it's upsetting, and uh, I've, I've been very careful about uh, about saying too much, even when my my grandson was younger. Because uh, yes. he wanted to know a lot more, mm. uh, but he did read the book. He's he's yeah. fourteen now, uh, and I asked him what he thought of it, and he said it 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 was a hard book to take, but but he's strong. Mm. So. What do you think happened to your mom's first husband? Uh, so he, welcome. I mean, again, a sad sad story. He was sent to Buchenwald, and I know. Uh, that he lived through the middle of 1944 in Buchenwald, uh, but he he was sick, and then Buchenwald uh, and some camps around Buchenwald were being used uh, to make V2 uh, rockets that were sent over to London, right, uh, during the Blitz. And uh, the Allies were 
bombing, and I believe he was killed in an Allied raid, a bombing raid. Ironic. Uh, he was a worker, uh, a slave laborer. So he that that's how he died. No, no. Uh, after the war, uh, the World Jewish Congress and lots of other organizations looked for survivors' families. They were given lists of people. Uh, and my father, I, I have the list that my father gave them to try to find these people just in case somehow they had survived. But no one was ever found. Mm. You started out wanting to be a journalist, but that really didn't happen. What changed, what changed your mind and your path? And why would you want to be a journalist? Could there be some reason that is connected to this horrific and harrowing experience? Well, I, I, I did. I, I like. I was always fascinated in the news, and I just. Uh, it, it was I, when when I was young, uh, because of what my parents had gone through. Uh, they they only spoke to me in they didn't never they didn't when I was young they didn't speak to me in English, they spoke to me in Yiddish, uh, and I purposely decided that I was not going to speak back to them in Yiddish but only in English, and I decided as much as I could, I think my own survival instincts told me that I needed to separate from them, very quickly, yes. and. And so I, I separated by reading. I, I actually never read fiction. I only read nonfiction. And, and I'm sure there was something going on about knowing the facts, knowing what was real versus what wasn't real. And uh, but so I decided and I, and, I, and I wanted to be a scientist. I wanted to be all kinds of other things. But the only thing I could do was write. I couldn't do anything else. And I just... I was very good at writing and reporting and, and high school newspapers, junior high school newspapers. Wow. So I wanted to be a writer. Uh, and then uh, and I started by doing some journalism. I worked, uh, I got a journalism degree and a master's and then worked on, as a general assignment reporter and did all kinds of freelance writing. But then uh, I think I just decided that uh, I didn't want to be away from my family. Family became the most important thing for me. And I didn't want to be somewhere else. I wanted to be close to them. And so I took my writing and worked in communications, but for a large company. So I, I was no longer, I was a journalist in one way because I was responsible for all the journalism that was done by this company and reports, speeches, newsletters, but, but not real journalism. Mm. One thing that you like the readers to take away from your book, what will that be? I think I, 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 I discovered when I, I talk about some of this to groups that, that people start reading the book or listen to my talk and, and one understands that they start out knowing that there are these strangers that they're reading about. Strangers who 
go through very difficult times. And and I and I found that what ends up happening is that people become more empathetic. That while they can't actually identify and and consider what would it be like to to be in that person's shoes because how could you even begin to imagine what it's like to be in the shoes of somebody uh, in a concentration camp but you you can feel for those people so people my parents for example who you don't know at all and you get to know by reading about their lives uh, before the Holocaust and then during the Holocaust. And then the second half of the book is actually about living with them and stories about our living together yes. uh, in the United States. You get to care about them and, and, and feel for them. And I think if the world could, if more people were empathetic, if could they could identify with other people from different backgrounds, different races, different religions, and 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 feel for them as human beings going through difficult times or even going through happy times, then then uh, then the world will be a better place. And I think I, I want people to be empathetic. I want people to finish the book and say, "Oh, isn't it sad that this happened?" Or isn't it great that this happened for them or with them or if if only this had happened to them and and they became people who now you know their names now you know their stories and you can feel for them you can and and that opens up people's hearts to other people and that's my hope about this book yes and the strangers become people and the victors and the victims become people because they are. That's right. They become people. Once I, I knew the names of my father's first two, her, his two children, his two little girls, everything changed. I didn't even have a picture of them, but I created a picture of them in my head. Oh. And suddenly they were, they were my, my sisters. Mm. Wow. Beautiful. And... Your sister, you you hardly said much about her. My my sister, uh, she's, she was older than me, and because she's older than me, I think she suffered more yes. in terms of dealing. She had to deal more with my parents, and understood more who they were and what they had gone through than I did as as the younger child. Uh, so she, I think, more than me, she was very delighted that, uh, that I wrote this book, that I found all these things out. But she wasn't, she wasn't interested in really knowing any of that. Mm. I think she had been harmed more by all the memories that yes. my mother had. My mother was a difficult person. Uh, schizophrenic probably paranoid maybe for good reason but still and and i think because she was her daughter i think my sister suffered more than i did i i i was able to separate more and, and my sister was not able to separate as much and so uh when i wrote the book i actually sent the manuscript to my sister 
and told her that if any of it really upset her, that I would just throw the book away. And we would never try to get it published at all. And because I didn't, well, she's a lovely, lovely, wonderful person. I didn't want to upset her. And, and she read it. And, uh, and I think it upset her. But I think she was delighted that now her children will know more about who these people were. And maybe they'll understand her better than, and, and be empathetic a little more, knowing where she came from. And be able to interpret some of her actions and um, behaviors and choices and decisions she probably yeah. took while she was there. Yeah. Oh, history has no blank pages. No. <laughs> Such a story needs to be told and retold, and we need to continue talking. I hope so. I, I was with... Uh, other authors of Holocaust books, uh, the publisher that I have, Amsterdam Publishers, uh, started uh, 10 years ago only publishing Holocaust stories. Yeah. And, uh, and we got together, there were about 40 authors, and, and we all said to each other, you know, we sort of traded a little bit about our, our experiences, but mostly the conclusion was there are we were just telling 40 stories and there are, you know, 6 million other stories to tell, but at least it's something. It's big. That one number, that two. Yeah. Uh, um, I believe through these 40 stories, we get to see the other millions of stories. Yeah, there, there was actually, a, it was very sweet. There was a girl there, a 16 year old girl whose uh, father had died two years earlier of pancreatic cancer. And her grandmother was a survivor. They lived in New York. And when she found that, uh, that she was already forgetting experiences that she had with her father when she was younger, mm. it occurred to her that she had to get down on paper something about her grandmother and her memories in some way. And so this 16-year-old girl wrote, a, wrote actually a, a young adult story uh, that was based on her grandmother's memories because she said she didn't want those stories also to be forgotten. Yes, this show comes to an end. The conversation doesn't have to. The conversation continues. How can our listeners and our viewers find out more about you? Where can they get the book? Well, Painful Joy is published by uh, Amsterdam Publishers. They, if they, they can ask a bookseller to, to order it. You can get it on Amazon if you're if you're in Amazon around the world. You can. It's uh, people in Australia and in Japan and in Great Britain uh, have all read the you know because there it's an ebook as well as a hardcover and a soft cover. Amazon is probably the best place. Uh, 
and uh, and uh, some libraries actually uh, have it, at least in the U.S. I'm sorry about all that you went through and being the second generation survivor of the Holocaust. We can only imagine that today you have taken us on a journey of more than six million people because it's through your stories we see their stories and others who are telling their stories. I'm going to ask a question that will probably not be a comfortable one. But if you will not answer, it's okay. But if you will answer, it will be an enlightenment for all those who will get to see this, hear this, far and near. Do you feel or think or perceive that Jewish people are a threat? Or have they ever been a threat before? Are Jewish people a threat? No. <laughs> Jewish people, <laughs> people on the, on, uh, have always uh, unfortunately been... Uh, been victims of uh, of malicious rumors and and stories that were not true uh, because they were perhaps a little different because the religion was different. Uh, it's hard to understand why, you no. Know, but uh, you know, I mean, it, uh, they're just people. I mean, you know, <laughs> it, it 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 is amazing that that. Even to this day, there have been surveys that have been done uh, yeah. in Europe and in the United States. And um, I don't know in Asia or Africa, but certainly in, in those two continents where they ask about the Holocaust and what what young people know about it. And they know very little, if anything. And, and for... 20 or 30% in many countries believe that it was never happened, that it's all a lie. Yes. And I think, unfortunately, social media sometimes makes people very narrow because it, it, it's directed. If you uh, have a certain interest, you get more of that messaging than any other messaging. Yes. And that may be okay if your interest is coin collecting, but if your interest is anti-Semitism, I'm not sure. Uh, and so uh, it, it's a complicated story, but certainly uh, Jews, you know, it's like saying Chinese or Asians or or anybody. I mean, they're just, just people. Just people. Not, we, we don't all get together and uh, plan or next anything uh it, it, it it's sad because it's 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 part of history it's it's uh yes. certainly in, in in western culture and it's and it doesn't seem to be going away and that that's that's it, it's heartbreaking after all that has happened that uh, we we get to a point in where we we have so much good technology and so much good drugs and medicines and science 
and uh, we understand quantum mechanics, but we don't understand how to live next door to another person who has another religion or another faith or another color or and and somehow that defines them it's it's extraordinary and sad yeah we're at the end what will be your parting shots your last words i think people have to they they have to understand that the only way we're going to ever survive as a as a, the human race is is by uh, helping each other, by seeing each other as individuals who have value. And uh, as I said, once once you stop looking at somebody, even if you disagree with them, even if they have a different religion or a different color, or you come from a different background or have different political beliefs, but once you see them as something less than human, then, 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 then genocide happens, then the Holocaust happens, and then hate happens. And I just, people have to begin to understand that. And I don't, <laughs> I don't know how much, how much worse things can get before they do because otherwise it will get much worse. Yes. Well, ladies and gentlemen, Max Friedman, if you want that book, want any details on the book, go to amsterdampublishers.com. I'll take that again, amsterdampublishers.com, but also on Amazon. The book is available. Look, all the links are in the description. And if there's anything you might need or want please feel free to ask for it if you ask it shall be given so just ask for whatever it is that may not be there and um, we'll do our best to make it available to you and for you what a story no thank you for giving me all this time well thanks a gazillion times to you max for your for your passion, your honesty, your grace. You've shed so much, but with so much grace, so much passion, so much honesty. We appreciate that. We have learned so much. I want to go to Poland. Mm. Yeah, it, 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 I, I think if you go, if you go to... Auschwitz, where you go to Krakow and you go to all these places and the memorial sites and this and that. I think everybody, when, when we left Auschwitz, I, uh, I just said everybody needs to go here just because you, this, is, this is what happens when, when there's hate. Yes. It's one of the few places that you can still go to because all the other camps are pretty much gone. They're just like stones left and this and that. But Auschwitz stayed as it is. It was the biggest killing ground. Yeah. Uh, and it was the most organized and amongst the oldest. Uh, and if you go there, it just, it'll change. It, it changes who you are. And yes. Krakow is a 
Bringing you the good news all day long. You, you, you were tuned in to the hottest station on the planet. On the planet. Keep it locked.